The first reading is from Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the children of your body I will set on your throne. If your children keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their children also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its provisions. I will satisfy its poor with bread. Its priests I will clothe with salvation, and its saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please stand? The second reading is from Acts 2, verse 29 to 33. Brothers and sisters, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he flesh, see flesh corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of what we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll invite you to please be seated. A few uh, days ago, our Wycliffe student and preacher this morning, Gavin, tested positive for COVID. He's now well on his way to recovery, but was not able to be with us in person to preach the sermon. And so yesterday, he pre-recorded the sermon for us. Good morning. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that in the midst of the circumstances of life that you surround us in ways that call you to mind, even when we find ourselves overwhelmed and losing hope. And so this morning, I ask that you would remind us again 
who you are and what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ. And that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. There's an old spiritual that you might have heard at some point in your life. And the refrain goes something like this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this process of remembering is an interesting phenomenon in human life. We all want to be remembered for something in some way, whether we are remembered for something while we're alive or after we have gone. In the world, we pass hospitals or large buildings with wings named after donors or monuments and civilizations that have been built by former generations. In the social media age, we have uh, things like on Facebook, um, the this post X years ago feature, or many photo apps even now have a sort of memory box where they pull random photos that you took or saved uh, at a certain time in the past. And prior to social media, we collected photo albums or yearbooks where we would collect photos of people that were close to us or our classmates. And this provided a, a way for us to look back and remember a different point in our life, our younger self or a time where we were celebrating something. And oftentimes we would turn to these and we might turn to them still in a season of sorrow when we want a little bit of hope or in a season of joy when we want to share something that is a part of who we are. There's an old trope of the sort of uh, dating life of a young person where you introduce this person to your parents and they pull out all of your old baby photos and pictures of you doing embarrassing things as the kid and your parents reminisce about, you know, the, the person you were and you doing this sort of crazy thing. And if you've ever been in that situation uh, where it's happening, you can only just sort of sit there in horror and watch as this person that you care about is being introduced to all of your sort of very human flaws. And we do this because we come from somewhere and we want a way of being connected to this person that we are. It reminds us that outside of the current moment that we were someone else we faced situations that passed. And even in our liturgical cycle, 
in the season of Lent, we engage in this same sort of action of memory where we begin our journey by hearing, remember you are dust and to the dust you will return. Memory reminds us that we come from somewhere, that we're connected to other people. And we can call these things to mind even after they're gone. Even in our own church, there are little reminders of this around the walls where these stones have been placed there to call to mind the memory of someone precious. In our psalm today, we are presented with the concept of memory as a means of keeping hope alive in dire circumstances. As the pilgrims continue their journey towards Jerusalem, they recount what God has done in the past. And in doing this, they hang on to hope for what God will do for them in the future. As we journey with them, we are invited to look at ourselves, to call to mind the things that God has done for us in the past, and to press forward in the sure hope of the resurrection, what he will do for us in the future. Our psalm opens, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes until I have found a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The first five verses of our psalm are situated within the context of the covenant that God made with David. And this covenant is deeply connected to the building of God's temple in Jerusalem. David looks out and sees what God has done for him. And he wants to build God a grand dwelling place. He looks at his season of prosperity and his palace. And in contrast, God's tabernacle is in a tent. So, in light of this, verses three to five are David saying to God that he will be unrelenting in his pursuit to build God this grand dwelling place. The heart of what's going on here is a concern for the idea of God dwelling with God's people again. The psalmist tells us how David heard of where the ark had been and strives to restore it. Interestingly, David is not the one who does this. In 1 Chronicles, God tells David that he can't build God a house, but that his descendant will be the one to do this. This situates the covenant with David in a wider reality, a history and a future bigger than himself. And the psalmist looks back at this reality and looks forward to the promise that comes with the future, which is described as an abundant place of provision. And this action of recalling and singing the psalm is a, 
a way of reliving the good old days. It's a means to hold on hope in the midst of difficult situations. And we do this ourselves in a lot of different ways. I often, for example, during the strain of the academic year, find myself fantasizing about getting eight hours of sleep. And I struggle to recall what it was like to be well-rested. And this is something that those who have parented children or spent any amount of time with small children can understand very well. In the midst of the busyness of Toronto, as someone who grew up in the country, I often find myself looking for moments of quiet and struggling to think about the last time where there was no noise. And this is, again, something that people can relate to if they have spent any amount of time with someone who is maybe more extroverted than them or small children or just chatty relatives. We all look to the greener pasture of memory when we face difficult things. But the psalm isn't just reminiscing. They're actually holding this memory up to God and asking him to do what he's told them he would do. And what is that thing? To establish a throne, a kingdom that does not end, and to dwell among the people. In verses 7 and 8, the psalmist places this desire in the context of the temple. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. The psalmist says simply, come be with us again. Let us go to that place and time where you were with us and worship. This is accompanied by the request that your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. The ark is connected to the ministry of the priests and the period of time where Israel was what it should be. Because that is really what is at the heart of this request to restore things the way that they should be. And who can't relate to this? We're always surrounded by reminders of things not being the way that they should. The global pandemic has created the nearly constant point of conversation where we echo this sentiment of just wanting things to go back to the way that they should be. Back to normal. When we experience the first sign of creaking bones or wrinkling skin, we look back to the days of our youth. When we pay more money for groceries, we reminisce about larger portions and cheaper prices. When we witness the 
tragic death of a loved one. We remember them in their golden days. In all of these ways, we have a sense of life not being what it should be. And this is compounded for Christians because each of us has experienced a moment where everything has seemed as it should be, where God has brought everything into order. And in our life as Christian people, we hear every week that Christ will come again and will make all things new. But we look at the world and we seriously wonder how we can have hope and trust for something better. We may even be facing a darkness in our own life, whether that's anxiety related to inflation or sickness, strained relationships or grief at current events. In the middle of all of that, it's easy to forget who God is and what God has done for us in the past. As we wonder what sort of thing will happen in the future. In light of this, we hope, as verse 10 says, that God will not turn away from us. And this takes us to the heart of our psalm. Verse 11 and 12 say, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So we've talked about the context of the psalm and the Davidic covenant. But what about this piece here where God is promising something conditional and unconditional? God promises David that he will place one of the sons of his body on the throne. And that is an unconditional gift. There's nothing that human beings need to do. There's nothing that David needs to do. God will do this. This next piece is conditional. If your sons keep the covenant and my testimonies, then their sons will forever sit on your throne. Now we know that Solomon fails and Israel falls into ruin. And this theme of human beings failing to meet the conditions of the covenant run all over the history of God's people. Moses isn't even down the mountain to give the law to Israel and they've built a calf. David himself violates God's commandments when he takes the wife of Uriah into his household. Rinse and repeat. We cannot live up to these conditions set for us in the face of a holy God. And if we can't live up to these standards, then how will this promise be fulfilled? And who is the son promised to David in this act of unconditional giving. To be sure, Solomon is a part of this, but that's not where it ends because the verse doesn't specify Solomon. 
Our reading this morning from Acts answers this riddle. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his sons on the throne. Jesus is then this promised son of the throne of David. Jesus is also the means in which the conditional elements set in the Davidic covenant are fulfilled. In light of this, the whole of our psalm is transfigured. We're reminded of the new covenant we have in Christ, where we are brought in as his own children. And this is at stake in our passage in Acts. This is the message preached to the crowds at Pentecost, and it reveals the central point of much of the New Testament's teaching on Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, of the covenant promised to David. The disciples preaching to the crowds look backwards to what God has said and done in Israel's history, and they see Jesus as this fulfillment. And because they see Jesus there as the fulfillment, they know that they can look forward to him returning and making these covenantal promises come to pass. Jesus alone is capable of fulfilling the conditional element in verse 12, keeping my covenant and my testimonies. When Israel journeys toward the promised land, they fail to live up to God's standards again and again. When the Israelites obtain the promised land, they fall away. The best examples of human beings in the Old Testament, like David and Solomon, are unable to measure up to the requirements of the law. Because if they could, then their salvation would be attainable by their own works. But the truth of this is, is that salvation can't come by human effort because of the effect of sin, which limits the human capacity to choose to fulfill the requirements of the law. Christ's sacrifice then becomes the means in which the requirements of the law are satisfied and then applied to those who are in Christ. In Christ then, the Christian is enabled to be a part of this covenant people and subsequently look forward to the promise of this covenant, which is given in our next verses. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. The truth of life in all of its hardships is that God has chosen the path of being with us. And, and in light of this, God orders history in such a way that it culminates with his own stepping into that history. Because of this, human memory matters. Because God acts in real time in a way that cannot be erased and he does not forget. The challenge for Christians living in the world is that we're called to be the ones who remember who God is, 
and what he's called us to be about. And that's difficult because we live in a culture that is hostile to the notion of memory. By politicizing history, we erase it. We remove the messy things we don't like and want to forget about. In our relationships with human beings, we can erase messages and remove profiles and curate our social spheres. We can forget about our elderly people by putting them in homes. We can forget that we get sick and die by increasing our beauty via cosmetic means and are increasing our lifespan and wellness through the diet industry. When we die, even, we now have celebrations of life and living funerals. We push graveyards, even, outside of city limits. But everything falls apart when the memory goes. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. And when we do this, we forget where we come from. And when we do that, we can't see where we're going. To forget the history of what God has done before in the life of God's people is to be unable to see past the moment that's directly in front of you. To be a Christian, then, is to be connected to memory and place to have a destination and a point of beginning. And this destination is none other than life with God, open to us by the gate of the cross. When it seems that the road is dark, we are promised a lamp. And that lamp is the light of memory, brightening our path so that we can see the future of Zion. In our life together, we are given things which help us embody this action of recalling the past to see the future. Each week we gather and remember what Christ has done for us when we have the Eucharist in memory of him who has died for us. We say the words, Christ died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We hear the words of scripture proclaimed to us each week. And we're invited to remember that we've come from somewhere, that we belong to something larger than our present moment, and that we're going somewhere. And this helps keep us grounded in the middle of dark places in our life. It gives us a place of stability. When we worry about the effect of inflation or wars or rumors of wars, we're allowed to remember that God always provides for us. When we face loneliness, we can remember others who have been with us and can reach out and do the same. In the grounded place of the history of God's people, we know that we're not in this alone. And like David himself, it doesn't all depend on us. This means that our current feeling of anxiety about any particular thing can be grounded in the fact that our future outcome does not change. Our work does not change. 
being grounded in this memory is the means of being at peace while the world is in turmoil. It's the moment given to the believer in a hard situation to take a breath, reorient, and move forward. A place of anchoring calm. And it's for this reason that reminders are woven into the life of God's people. We're easily distracted and we need things to keep us grounded in the truth when we're in danger of losing our way. Israel does this in the singing of the Psalms and the public proclamation of the Torah. The audible reading and singing of God's word to his people ground the Israelites, whether they're in plenty or in exile. The Israelites would have committed Psalms to memory and been able to recall them when they were in trouble. And this is one reason that the Christian church has always found it appropriate to recommend that her members read, mark, and inwardly digest the words of scripture. And the whole history of Christian worship is built around this repetitive pattern of hearing, proclaiming, gathering, eating, and singing. And this develops a memory that grounds the Christian even at death's door. This past summer, I served as a chaplain at a children's hospital in Dallas, where I primarily worked in the emergency room. In the times that I was lucky enough to be debriefed of a situation before entering a room, I would enter a sort of rhythm of recalling a psalm as I walked towards the room. I would hear the words as I took each step on my way to either witnessing traumatic news or to a room where that news was about to be given to a family. I would take a step. The Lord is my shepherd. Another step. Therefore, can I lack nothing? And as the door would swing open, he shall feed me in a green pasture. Because of the protective gear required in many rooms and the effects of COVID, I often did not have a Bible with me. Yet I knew that it was only there that I could find comfort and strength to be with the families of these children. And from there, I could offer them a word of hope. And in that moment, I needed my own memory to bring these words to mind. In addition to this, I could ask most families, even if they had admitted little to no connection with Christianity or church, if they knew the Lord's Prayer. These moments of memory and connection take us to a deeper place of dependence on Christ in the face of circumstances beyond our control and enable us to proclaim boldly what we know to be the truth. Memory breaks through when everything else has left us and is a sudden flash of light on life's dark road. In that moment, when we remember who we are, despite our circumstance, we recall that we've made it through something like this moment before, and we can take another step forward. In this, the power of God, rooted in our connection with his work throughout time and in Jesus Christ, is made real to us and gives us the vision to see our future in him. 
And this future is more real and full of hope than any darkness that would seek to blind us and make us forget who we are. Today, as we approach the Lord's table, let us come with a full confidence, remembering what God has done for us in Christ and recall all of the ways that he has delivered us from our own moments of darkness in the past. As we recount these things, we can look forward in hope and see that he will certainly do this for us again and again until at last we dwell together in Zion. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.